I would like to invite everyone to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Today we continue our journey in Hebrews, uh, and today we come to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 28. For those who are unfamiliar, I am Willis, and I'm the associate pastor here. I did not um, form a mutiny against Doug and and force him out. Uh, It's much worse. He's in Cancun. (laughs) Toes in the sand. Poor guy. If you have kids, um, chances are your kids watch Bluey. Uh, And chances are you have heard them say at some point, this is taking for ages. Uh, Instead of saying forever, like it's taking forever, the Australians uh, like to say for ages. Uh, I don't know. We humans have a hard time envisioning what like forever would look like. uh, Or that forever uh, could be good, right? So you have your typical drawings of heaven uh, in, the, in the newspaper or whatever, and you have your sad little angel guy. He's got his halo and his wings and his harp, and he's sitting on top of a cloud, and he's bored because he's been singing for like 10,000 years, right? Uh, there's a show called The Good Place, and it's a show all about exploring morality and uh, what it would mean to be in the afterlife or who gets into the good place, a.k.a. heaven, and, of course, it's got Ted dancing in it, you know, from Cheers, so that's a plus. Um, anyway, this is a bit of a spoiler, uh, so apologies. But it takes a while for the characters to actually arrive in the good place. It takes, like, the whole show to act- actually get them there. It's like one of the last couple episodes. And everything is so good, right? It's, it's just wonderful. There's candy that gives you the energy for when you were 12. Uh, there's headphones that... You can put on it, tell you every good thing that someone has said about you behind your back. Uh, and a photo booth that always takes good pictures of you. It always makes you photogenic, right? Everything is great. There's all this good stuff. And so they, they, the characters, they get in and they meet everyone that's, that's made it to the good place, that was virtuous enough to make it there. And, and the problem is, is that everyone is bored, Everyone has become so bored, they've tried everything they can imagine, and they've run out of ideas to stay happy, to keep them occupied. In the, in the end, doing the same thing, even the best thing, over and over, forever, makes for a life of monotony. In our, our chapter today, the author begins his, this passage by talking about this guy named Melchizedek. Um, he's already mentioned Melchizedek before in Hebrews, uh, most recently in, in chapter 5. Talked about uh, Melchizedek, Melchizedek there, and that's the author pauses, right? We are going through chapter 5, the author pauses, he issues a warning. Uh, and, and we looked at, looked at that over the last two weeks. At the end of chapter 6, the author concludes his warning, right? The warning is, don't reject Jesus or you'll be lost forever. At the end of the warning, he offers an encouragement The promises God offered to Abraham are offered to believers in Christ today. And what was encouraging about that particularly is that his promise and his oath are unchanging and permanent. This is important for our passage today because he picks up Melchizedek again with those same ideas of forever, of permanence. God's promise and his oath are permanent and unchanging 
and He supplied a priest for us to secure them who is also permanent and unchanging. The thrust of today's passage is about permanence and and doing something forever. Jesus is priest forever. He fulfills His priestly duties forever. And it's, it's not monotonous. It's glorious. Not boring, but the best hope that humans can possibly have. Jesus is gloriously delighted to be priest forever. For ages. Let's read our passage today. We're going to read all of chapter 7. And I'd like to point out three dynamics that make Jesus a perfect priest forever. Let's read. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, He continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute, that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests." This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who were formerly priests, formerly became priests, were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives 
to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Three dynamics that makes Jesus a better priest forever. First, Jesus is a better priest because of his position. As I mentioned, as we read, this passage starts off by talking about Melchizedek. And, and, and verses 1 to 3 are essentially a description of uh, Melchizedek, a refresher of, of what happened when we're introduced to him in Genesis 14. Abraham rescues his nephew Lot. He defeats the wicked kings of the land. Uh, and out comes Melchizedek to meet him. We learn that Melchizedek is king of the city called Salem, which is later is known as Jerusalem, and he's priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek is a surprising character because you don't expect him at all, yet, yet here he comes, and he's a king, and he's also a priest, one of the central themes of the book of Hebrews. And so what Melchizedek does in Genesis 14 is he blesses Abraham and receives a, a tenth from him, a, a tithe, with which the author will talk about. But, but first, in, in verses 1 to 3, it's essentially a description of his nature. He, he writes um, uh, in the second half of verse 2, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. So, right, Melchizedek, the, the Melchi, uh, Melchi is king and Zedek is righteousness. So, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace, right? That word Salem is where we get our word, or the same word of as shalom, right? Uh, shalom uh, being this peace, this Edenic peace, right? So, he's king of, of peace. And it's really interesting because one reason why we don't expect Melchizedek is, is like, what happens in Genesis, like, right before Abraham? Like, the flood, Right, God judges the earth because everyone's so sinful and he has to start over with, with Abraham. No one is righteous. So he restarts. But, but here comes this guy who is described as, his name is King of Righteousness and he's King of Peace, King of Salem. Two titles, by the way, that are only used of God. So a mysterious figure indeed. Now, the author adds this, he is without father, father. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, some have taken this to mean that this is a, a pre-incarnate Christ, right? Where the Son of God manifested himself to Abraham in a, a pre-incarnate form. Could be the case. But what is more likely happening here is that the author is arguing typologically, okay? Um, typology, the word of the day, uh, means something in the Old Testament, a, a person, an institution, an event 
points in some significant way to a greater fulfillment in Christ. It points to need for fulfillment that's later fulfilled in Christ, right? We call these things types. Now, I know for many of you, the only time you like to hear type is when you're asked, what type of cheese would you like on your cheeseburger? The correct answer to which is pepper jack. However, in Scripture, type, type means to typify, to signal. So, so I, I believe Melchizedek is a, a real guy, a real human, a real king who we call a type of Christ. Someone who in God's sovereign plan of history points to Christ in a significant way. What all this means is that the author isn't arguing literally that, that he has no beginning and no end or no parents. Instead, Melchizedek figuratively has no end of days because he, he typifies, he, he figures, he points to, to the one to, who comes who truly does live forever. He is pointing to the greatness of Melchizedek simply because of his nature. He's king of righteousness and king of peace and one who has neither beginning of days nor end of life. Like This is a significant figure who has all of two verses, uh, two or three verses in Genesis. And it's not just, right, like, okay, this great guy comes along, king of righteousness, king of peace, no genealogy, that kind of thing. It's, it's not just that we can see it in his nature, and this is why the author moves on to verses 4 to 10. We can see it in how Abraham responds to him. It's one thing for a guy to come up and say, I'm great. It's another thing for a guy to come up and be great, and people actually acknowledge that he's great. So that's what he says, verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tent of the spoils. Now, as, as Bible readers, sometimes we do this, but even if you're an Israelite um, back in the day reading this, it would be easy to just like pass over Melchizedek, right? His, we talked about it. his appearance is brief. It's like two, three verses. And, and the focus is on Abraham anyway. And I mean, heck, if you're a good Israelite, you like to hear about Abraham. He's, he's your father, right? He's why you have your whole identity in the first place. I, I like Abraham. But the author of Hebrews doesn't want his audience, to skip over this, this stunning fact. There was a priesthood that existed above and outside of the priesthood of Israel. And that's the whole point of verses 4 to 10. And, and it's not just, whoa, 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 there's a, another priesthood that exists outside of, of Israel. It's, it's also the fact that this priesthood of Melchizedek is far and away superior it's better. Again, if you're an Israelite reading this, you're like, wait, how does this exist? God gave the law, the Mosaic law. How is there this priesthood that exists outside of all of this? And how is it better? It would have been shocking for an Israelite to realize. And, and, and the author lists three things right, that, that shows this superiority. First, it's the, the giving of the tithe, right? Uh, he talks about the descendants of Levi receive the tithe because it's in the law and they receive it from Israelites, right? Uh, it was commanded in the law, Mosaic law to be taken by the priests who served in the temple. Nobody else gets this tithe. Nobody else has this priestly function. Yet this guy who doesn't trace his lineage to any Israelite receives 
the tithe, a priestly duty. Second, it's not just that he, a non-Israelite, a Gentile, uh, receives the tithe. He receives it from the preeminent patriarch. He can go down the list and say, well, Isaac, Isaac had problems. Jacob had problems. His sons were nightmares. But Abraham, Abraham's the preeminent patriarch. It's almost as if all of Israel is bound up in the character of Abraham needing Mel- this Melchizedek to perform his priestly work. So it's the receiving of the tithe. It's, it's, the, it's Abraham who gives him the tithe. And, and then third, it's that Melchizedek blesses Abraham, that's what he says um, in verse 7, is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. You know who does all the blessing in the Abraham story? God. And here is this Melchizedek, this stunningly superior priest, blessing Abraham. The greatness of Melchizedek is seen in his far and away superior position. A stunning and and shocking position. You'll often hear the President of the United States referred to as the most powerful man in the world. Now, if Congress was worth its salt, that wouldn't necessarily be the case, but here we are. (laughs) What we see in Genesis would be as if the President had to pay taxes to another nation altogether to be who he is. Through Abraham, the whole Israelite priesthood gives its due to his superior priestly position. That's what he he talks about, right? One might even say Levi paying tithes because he's still in his ancestor's body. And remember... He's not just trying to tell us these cool things in the Bible. He's trying to get these Jews who who are Christians to stay true to Jesus. And and what he's arguing here is that to prefer Levi is to prefer the inferior. So the question becomes, what has Jesus become subordinate to in your heart? How have you subordinated Jesus from his superior position to something inferior it's not a matter of preference either jesus will capture your heart as this superior priest or the inferior will captivate you it's just like c.s lewis wrote we are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea the inferior the danger in this, is that the inferior will always lead your heart away from Jesus. Okay. One thing that I, um, that I don't miss when Mal was pregnant, it's still fresh in my memory, okay? One thing I don't miss while Mal was pregnant is the, uh, the pregnancy pillow. Some of y'all know what I mean. It's a pillow the size of a human, <laughs> which meant I, I got the shaft. I got the sliver of bed left. I'm not bitter. <laughs> and, you know, it would be a lot worse if Mallory kept sleeping with it. Like, hey, baby's out, but I like this pillow. Like, sorry about you. Like, you're... 
That would be a lot worse. What made the pillow, what made it better, right, was that I knew the pillow wasn't the end of the story, right? There was something better coming. It would do away with the ineffectiveness of the pillow and give us something better in its place. The Levitical priesthood was never the end of the story. Melchizedek was meant to show that something far better was coming and something accomplished not by any human trait, but by the sheer power and might of the one who came. And this is why we see, secondly, that Jesus is a better priest because of his power. Better priest because of his position, better priest because of his power. Verses 1 to 10, right? It's kind of like the author's exposition of Genesis 14, if you will. He's explaining Genesis 14. The rest of this passage, this chapter, is essentially an exposition of Psalm 110, which we read with our, our responsive reading. And I, and I want to say, you know, the image of, of God bringing nations to heal as an H-E-E-L to their knees is a, a comforting one with everything that's happening right now, right? We want God to bring these foaming-at-the-mouth nations to their knees. So, Psalm 110. In light of Psalm 110, the author says in, in verse 11, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. He starts off, like this is a pretty simple point, he starts off by saying, like, right, if, if the Levitical priesthood was the end, if it was complete, if it was what was needed, then why promise another one in the first place? Right? What need would there have been for another priesthood to arrive? That's what Psalm 110 is about, which he's quoted several times in Hebrews already. It's not just like, hey, hey, we're waiting on this new priest to, to arrive, right? It's not like, hey, we're waiting on Aaron and Levi, these, these guys to produce someone who's not a dingus, right? It's like, we've got to produce an entirely new priesthood and new law altogether. That's why he says in verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is a change in the law, in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord Jesus, our Lord, was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Right? He's talking about Jesus here. Jesus is high priest, not by the order of Aaron, but by the order of Melchizedek. Now, the author, he's already established that, that Melchizedek is this high priest that is above and beyond, separate from the Levitical priesthood. In this case, having a priest from the tribe of Judah fulfills exactly that. This is a priest not by the usual order of things, not by how things are normally done, but in a higher and better order that has its precedent all the way back in Genesis 14 with Melchizedek. He backs this up in verse 15. He's making a tight argument here. He says, This becomes even more evident when another a priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. 
In other words, how do we know that Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek and not just some guy trying to make something new altogether? Because of his resurrection. He, ro- he rose from the dead. In the Old Testament, a-, a Levite could become a priest just because he's descended from Levi. Jesus, on the other hand, didn't meet any of these external requirements to, to be descended from Levi, to have the specific genealogy. But he fulfilled the righteous demands of the whole law with his whole person. And so this means that he is the first person to achieve priesthood by virtue of righteousness. These other Levites are there because there's this legal requirement that, bo- that bodily descendants of Levi become priests. <laughs> He's priest because he achieved the position. So here he quotes Psalm 110 again. In verse 17, for it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So you have verses 1 to 10 talking about um, Melchizedek and his superior position in, in verses 11 19 are all about the uselessness and weakness of the priesthood and thus the law. They, they, they were useless, they were weak because they couldn't achieve the exact thing that they were pointing to, the need for true forgiveness of sin and direct access to God. No matter how many animals were offered, no matter how many Levitical priests came along, no matter all these things that they tried to do, it could never do any of those things. God promised a priesthood that would come and do away with the old and give something far better. Through the priesthood achieved by Christ, we have a better hope through which we draw near to God. You know, that's, that's the whole tension of the Old Testament is you have a God who wants to dwell among His people, but His people are stubbornly sinful and rebellious. And so He's among them, but they can't be with Him because if they're too close to Him, they'll die. They, they don't go close to Mount Sinai. They can't go into the inner curtain. They'll die. They can't touch the Ark of the Covenant. They'll die. It's, that's a tension created by the Old Testament. And it's supposed to be like, something's wrong here. Tom Schreiner put it this way, the Levitical priesthood did not bring people near to God. Instead, it reminded people that they were distant from Him, that their sins were not atoned for fully and finally. And, but now, by virtue of our new high priest, we can all draw near to Him. It's, you know, you'll hear questions like, you pray to the, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, or the Father, and We'll get into all that, but it's like we're invited over and over again in the New Testament to go to the Father because Christ has achieved a direct access into the presence of the Godhead. He's like, you don't, you don't have to go through me. You pray in my name, yes. You pray by faith in my name, but look, you have access to the One, the Father. I ran across an article recently where the author is writing about these new apps that are developed um, with AI. 
uh, that you can create your dream girlfriend, right? You can determine how she looks. You can have conversations with her. just want to say, it's not a good idea. Right? Nobody do this. But, like, isn't, like, the idea of, like, creating anyone you want, this, this like, robotic thing, like, isn't it just on the surface so miserly compared to the real thing? To choose the Levite priesthood over Christ is like choosing the AI version over the reality, the substance. The priesthood that Jesus inaugurates is better because it is based on his power. The power to do away with the old, the power of an indestructible life, and the power to give full and free access to God. Paul describes this in Ephesians 1. He's praying that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might, the working of his great power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And in Ephesians, Paul connects this power of resurrection, of being seated, right? between He connects that power to removing the barrier between Jew and Gentile so that why? Through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So again, stay true to Jesus. If you reject Jesus, it's to prefer what humans have been trying to put forward. It's to say, I actually trust in the human lineage or in the genealogy or in our efforts versus the amazing power of God in Christ. The law was always meant to point to human weakness and our need for something more, something desperate. Why now reject what God has so remarkably accomplished in power? He's a priest in power. Finally, Jesus is a better priest because of his perfection. Here the the author brings up this concept of oath. Again, we saw He's talking about that in chapter 6. He says, It was not without an oath, verse 20, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So, Just like in the previous paragraph, the author is is arguing that this priesthood is no longer based on human lineage or genealogy, but here the new priesthood is better because it's based on an oath. Now, we talked about oaths last week at the end of chapter 6 because God makes these promises to Abraham, I'll bless you and I'll multiply you, right? And we know, as good Bible Christians, God never breaks His word. But in order to show Abraham, in order to show us that God meant what he said, he seals the promise with an oath. It's God's way of communicating to us the positive certainty that he will keep it. It's the same idea here. This new priesthood in the order of Melchizedek is as sure as God is true. In fact, to deny the new priesthood of Jesus is to deny that God has kept his oath. 
Now here's something I want you to see that the author is doing by way of implication. By connecting the oath of Abraham to the oath of Melchizedek, he is implying that the promise to Abraham will not come apart from the priesthood of Melchizedek. Promise to Abraham to bless him and multiply is not going to come through the usual order of things. You know, if, if you're an Israelite, this, we see, read this in the Gospels. If you were an unobserving, unassuming Israelite, you would assume that the blessing would come through the Mosaic Law and the Levitical priesthood. But again, the whole point of this passage is to show how these things were insufficient to bring about that blessing. Read the Old Testament. Did these things bring about blessing? They never did. They only brought curse. The only hope that these Jews have is if the Melchizedek priesthood is fulfilled. If God keeps his oath. If you want to participate in those promises of Abraham, it must be done in the order of Melchizedek not in the order of Aaron. This is why the author can say in verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Why? Because this is based on God's word and work. That's what this oath means. It's going to come about by God supplying this for us and not us constantly trying to produce this and failing. You know, one thing that's interesting about Melchizedek, there's a lot of things that are interesting, is that he appears in Genesis 14. Now, next chapter is Genesis 15. And Genesis 15 is a very infamous chapter because in Genesis 15, God has already made his promises to Abraham, but in Genesis 15, God ratifies his promises with a covenant. This is where he makes his covenant. He's promised, Melchizedek comes, God now makes a covenant. It's too much to go into right now, but covenants require two parties, right? If one does not uphold their end of the deal, it meant death. In Genesis 15, God enters into a covenant with Abraham, but in a covenant between himself and human, humans, God takes upon himself the obligation of both parties. He's saying, I'm going to uphold my end of the deal here, and I'm going to uphold your end of the deal. Even if it means I must die if you fail. What's important about this for our text today is that this meant that in order for the human side to hold up their end of the deal, God must supply it. And that's exactly what the Melchizedek Oath is about. God's oath to supply what humans could not. This is why he goes into verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. You could almost say that they were unable to achieve their end of the deal because they're prevented by death. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is, he's perfect. 
Because God himself supplied what we could not produce. And listen, listen to the effect of this in the last, last verses. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You know, it's interesting uh, that Stephen Hawking, he considered that computer viruses should be considered a new form of life. And he said, he said this, he says, maybe it says something about human nature that the only new form of life we have created so far is purely destructive. This is the crux of the argument here. Rejecting Jesus is not just about preferring what only humans can put forward. It's about preferring the only thing humans can put forward. Death. The little Levitical priesthood was structured, built around death. The death of thousands upon thousands of animals. The death of generations of priests. Death, death, death. The priesthood of Jesus, the order of Melchizedek, is structured on life itself. Indestructible life. A son who has been appointed a priest forever. Why was a priest in the order of Melchizedek, necessary? Because the Levitical priesthood was built around only what could come from humans. It could never produce life, and it could never bring blessing to the world. God had to intervene. God had to uphold the human side of the covenant. And He did what humans could not do, what we humans failed to do. God upheld our end of the deal for us with perfection. He satisfied your end of the bargain, your end of the deal, so that you, sinner that you are, have a perfect, permanent, powerful high priest forever. It's not monotonous to him. He delights to be your high priest and to stand on your behalf day after day, moment after moment. It is not dependent on your ability, what you can produce, because what has been produced is perfect. Before the throne of God above, we have a strong and perfect a great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. God supplied that for you. Let us marvel at what a great God and high priest we have at this moment. Let's pray.